Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Jennifer Holt. Fabulous. It's exciting to see you and have the chance to talk to you, Jennifer. We've known one another a long time, and I'm a major fan of your work, so it's a great honor to have you return to the pod, to climb back into the pod, look around, see what things appear to look like from within. So my opening gambit is to ask you what you're currently thinking about, what's occupying your mind, what you're working on, you know, what what matters to Jennifer today? Well, thanks for having me back. I'm honored to be back in the pod with you. Um, I guess what's on my mind is the cloud. The cloud is always on my mind, the cloud in its many dimensions. Um, I... It's raining today in Santa Barbara, which it never is. So it's very exotic. <laughs> so I, I can take pictures of actual clouds. But um, I, I just finished a book called Cloud Policy with MIT Press and that it should be out in August. And it's really about the long arc of regulating cloud infrastructure. So regulating the pipelines, the platforms and the data that really are the socio-technical systems that we are talking about when we talk about the cloud. So it kind of goes back to the telegraph and comes forward to yesterday. So I'm kind of constantly thinking about how everything is changing. As you know, when you write a book about a contemporary topic, um, it evolves even after you have, you know, written the last word and turned it into the press and done the copy edit. So things keep changing. So um, I'm just always thinking about how the topic continues to transform and how interesting all of that is. That's great. Actually, a, a podcast I just distributed is with Kitan Joshi, who's an environmental consultant uh, oh, who works on the cloud. Um, oh. He was uh, uh, very interesting. That's a, a terrific topic, very important one. And you relate the metaphor back to your contemporary reality, which is rain clouds over Santa Barbara. <laughs> As you say, not a very common phenomenon. But there's something quite bizarre about the choice of, the me of a metaphor to describe these things, isn't there? Oh, it's it's not really bizarre. I think it's a marketing genius, the stroke of marketing genius, because you feel safe and happy putting all of your data, which is really going to some corporate bunker where you have zero control over it. And the policies that govern it are probably um, most definitely invading your privacy without your knowledge or your consent. But instead, you think of it residing in some ethereal space where it can be brought down at will, floating from the sky, and we feel happy about that metaphor. It could I, I think I wrote a whole list of other metaphors that could have been, like oh, really? the shed, the, <laughs> you know, like all of these kind of harsher, uglier terms where mm. you or something that you can't really access. And none of those would have been as palatable as the cloud. So whoever came up with the cloud, the construct of the cloud as um, the stand-in for somebody else's computer in a corporate bunker is, is truly a genius. Now, you said before we started recording that perhaps because you've just finished the book, and sent it all off. It's in a sense in the cloud now. I mean, it is yes. in the cloud, but it's sometimes hard to remember what's in a big project when you've just finished it. Ironically, I think. I I agree. In fact, it kind of all empties out of your brain, and then you go back and you look at the proofs and you say, "Did I write that? I I do not remember writing that. I don't know. I didn't know if that happened to anybody else, but that happens to me all the time." Well, I sometimes I think, do I know that? That's quite interesting. Why don't I know that? <laughs> so it's good to know that happens to you too. 
Can you tell us a little bit, to the extent you can remember, <laughs> about what's in the book? Sure. Um, I I kind of relate the regimes of policy. Um, I historicize them, but I relate them to larger crises of governance and, you know, culture. So ways in which these long arcs of regulation and policy impact um speech rights impact privacy rights impact um uh oh geez sorry um a- antitrust and so things like that and so i look at um pipelines separately and kind of go all the way back to the principles that have governed the telegraph and the telephone and how those have been variously mapped onto broadband and um evolved into the 21st century to really determine our access um, to information. And all of these problems ultimately kind of coalesce as a crisis for democracy in many ways. And so I relate it to those, those stakes Mm. Um, and thinking of platforms and how, um, you know, the role of big tech as, the new sovereigns and how their terms of service are those that are largely dictating um, our, the way that our um, access and our data is circulating um, and the privileges that we have. And also the way that it has impacted news, which is obviously central to the survival of a, democracy and then lastly i look at data and how that those regimes have evolved and that's the most complicated one because it's the one that forces global ways of uh, global regimes of governance to interact with one another which is not easily done um and so the kind of movement toward even national clouds which is so interesting that you know, we think we can contain these things in a geographical sense um, when they're circulating without actual territory and that kind of thing. And then ultimately thinking about what this means for um, for our own culture, for our own ability to access and um, discern truthful information and connect with one another. And so it's not a small topic, but I couldn't stop myself, and I just kept going. Fantastic. I'm I'm very excited to read this book, and even though we've only just started, I want to invite you back into the pod when it's out. Maybe okay. you can, you'll have read it then and learned, what about, <laughs> learned lots of new things. So one of the things that strikes me, and people should know you're the only person I know who has a degree in BS, right? Your your first degree says BS. It does. It does. <laughs> it's from the University of Illinois. Yes. And so you had experience as a fairly young person of going to Podunk, Illinois. Yes. Stuff. When you go to a, a smallish city or town or conurbation, whatever we call it, like Champaign-Urbana in the United States, as in many other countries, especially in the global north, some of the first things you might see are the telephone exchange, the railway station, the public school, and the post office. These are incarnations of socialism in the sense that they are there as the socialization of risk and investment in order to provide services to the public. The big shift is that the state of Illinois has handed over half a billion dollars to people like Microsoft to build clouds not on the part of individual consumers, but the government. But tracking where the hell the clouds are located as data centers in the state of Illinois is not an easy thing to do. You don't, it's, I mean, you can probably work out where the supercomputer is at the University of Illinois pretty easily, but you know what I mean? Uh, these other communication infrastructural nodes education, the posts, 
telephony, power stations too, were very visible. These other critters that we call the cloud, and as you say, they operate internationally, so that's certainly true, but they are physical material bricks and mortar data centers. And even though they have vast public subvention from taxpayers without who don't even know what they're funding, they're invisible. Yes? Yes. I, I talk a lot about visibility and invisibility in the book because, um, I mean, uh, Lisa Parks has written a lot about this infrastructural invisibility and the way that these technologies are often kind of um, camouflaged in order to also hide their existence in some ways from the very taxpayers that are funding them. Um, and now they're even becoming more invisible because they're in many cases going under the sea, um, being dropped into cold water where you don't have to pay for air conditioning to keep it cool, which is the largest expense of data centers. And, um, it just, you know, Microsoft has a pretty famous one off the coast of Scotland where there's little um, cameras that show all the sea life around it, which makes it a lot more friendly because the seals are adorable and, you know, all of the data, meanwhile, is underneath. And, um, but yeah, there's even some kind of spectacular examples of this. I love the, um, the Donnelly building in Chicago, which, is a beautiful architectural landmark and it was it used to be the publisher of the yellow pages and now it's one of the world's largest data centers and i love that kind of um you know transformation wow that's so interesting yeah because of whatever geography economics industrial history that also shows these kind of past dependencies that persist across all of these different infrastructures like you're talking about um that goes from processing and delivering 20th century data that mattered to us all the telephone numbers to 21st century data, which I think is really interesting about how these kind of digital infrastructures can inhabit and inherit the material and the immaterial frameworks of what of the past. Yeah. So how did you do the research? How did you learn all this stuff? Um, I think I've always been interested in um, the legal side of this field. It's always fascinated me. Um, I think in another life, I would have been a corporate lawyer for one of the five families in Hollywood. That would have been an interesting path, but it's not the one I took. So I'm still kind of fascinated about what goes on there. And so I just started doing a lot of you know, I think we all start big projects from one question that we can't find an answer for. And then it just kind of explodes from there. And so I did a lot of legal research because I was interested in how, you know, how data in the cloud is regulated. Is it regulated based on where it originates, where it ends up, where it's stored and processed? All of these things are different. All of these spaces and places and attendant policies are different. So that just kind of got me started. And that was a whole um, eye-opening world. But then you have to get kind of busy in corporate documents and um, kind of SC, you know, like SEC filings and a lot of financial information because all of it, it really is following the money. But then there's also endless great historical pathways that you take that you know thank goodness for the way in which our government over time has been a pretty decent archive of itself for the most part there are there's a new trend which i have experienced of let's erase the past and just take down all of this information, make it impossible to find. It does exist, kind of, but now 
it's much harder when most things are kind of put online first, for example, like hearing transcripts. And then when they're removed, because the next administration wants to pretend that never happened, um, they're very difficult to find. So it it became like a lot of um, many hard lessons in uh, downloading and preserving these materials as you find them. But progressive librarians are trying to do that, aren't they? Sorry, say that again. Progressive librarians. Oh, yes. Government and university librarians are trying really hard to do this because they know that the feds can no longer be trusted. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And and the, um, you know, the fact that you can find materials from whatever, 1908, easier than you can from, you know, 2017 is stunning. Well, I think but this, it, this uh, took historic paths under the Trump administration when there was a concerted attempt just to deny the existence of anything inimical to that project. You know. Yes, it was stunning. And if you if you didn't realize it as a scholar quick enough, what was happening, you lost immense amounts of valuable research material um, and time. But so your, your way into the project was partly because of your interest in legal questions surrounding the institutions of communication and culture. And partly through archival research into the sorts of filings that corporations are required to make as publicly listed companies. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, those are treasure troves because they, it's all of their marketing is right there. And the ways in which, for example, AT&T sold itself as an instrument of democracy while, um, you know, availing itself of endless government privileges, such as being a state-sponsored monopoly, which gave it the license to really print money, to be the only um, carrier of telecommunications in our country. Um, The way it starts, you know, linking these things for a public is so instructive Um, to understand the role of corporations in this project, because it starts with them. They had the long view before anybody, and they have kept it. And wow, are they an amazing case study. I mean, really. But yeah, there's all kinds of great documents and materials Um that are out there that help contribute to the fuller picture of this discussion. And really it's a cultural one where most of the debates are dominated by social scientists and quantified logics. And there's never a humanist in the room, but these policies are about human beings and about culture. So I really wanted it to be an insertion of humanistic perspectives into that landscape. Mm. And often history is forgotten and hence mindlessly repeated. Yes. I mean, that is, that is the root of all evil, really. We must remember our history Mm. and we just have to keep writing it and reading it and teaching it to keep it alive. Have you taught classes about this to students? I have. I I did a fun class last year called um, Cloud Infrastructure. It might not sound fun to some, but it was fun for, for me. And um, I think my students enjoyed it. It's kind of different ways of thinking about these infrastructures globally and culturally and <clears throat> really digging in to what they afford us. And what their policies allow. And each year when I teach large undergrad lecture classes, I always kind of introduce dimensions of it. I don't get, 
you can't get that deep, but you can get them to start understanding what these systems are and how important they are in their lives and what they what they allow and what they don't and what they take whether we know it or not and how that impacts who you know their very existence really you've mentioned privacy a bit including just yes. then and one of the things i found quite difficult with students especially in the united states was to say that the bogeyman being the government knowing about you is nothing compared to corporations knowing about you. Yeah, I mean, they don't care about anybody knowing about them. They, in fact, want everybody to know about them. And so that kind of dynamic of broadcast yourself and using social media for all of the ways in which they can market themselves, sell themselves, present themselves, communicate with others about themselves um, has created, you know, the best possible environment for what you're, you know, referring to as, you know, Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalists. This is this is it. This is the moment. And it's collided and it's given us, you know, all of us as data subjects, given it away. And here we are, like a different generation that kind of sees what's happening and sounding like Victorians, you know, like, oh, don't, don't do, don't put that out there. Don't do that. And um, after my class, sometimes I get them a little freaked out, which is good. I try really hard. One of the areas where this can resonate tragically is the sexual exploitation of young women online. In particular, yeah. the, the misuse of images of them yeah. by cropping or in some other way cutting or eliding, as well as revenge porn. Yeah. And I think, uh, as is so often the case, there's a gendered politics to this question of privacy that is the cutting edge of a resistance to it, resistance to this surveillance. But it is mostly about the survival experiences of young women in particular. And yeah. I think it needs to be used as a wedge issue big time to say, look, <laughs> there are real costs to this. So I don't ever put pictures of my young daughter anywhere on so-called social media so that anyway that, that's a one this is a wonderful project do we know when it'll hit bookstores near us which means there aren't any bookstores near us which means uh <laughs> it's gonna be um published with mit's um distribution matters series which is edited by ramon lobato and josh braun and it will be open access, so you don't even have to find a bookstore near you. It'll be um, available to all for free, and then it will also be in bookstores near you, hopefully in um, August, I believe. That's exciting. Yes, it's very nice. It's and wonderful that it will be available for downloading at no cost Yes, the readers, because you know, MIT you Press books yeah. are so wonderfully produced. You know, they're they're really great things to look at, as well as being of high intellectual quality. But they cost the proverbial, don't they? Often they do, and you know, when you work so hard on something for so long, the real reason you do it is because you want people to be able to read it. So that's wow. kind of so. In addition to having written this book, you're also head of your department, Jennifer, I think, right? Yes, that's true. <laughs> I'm sure you don't want to talk about that, but it'd be great to know what it's like doing that. Uh, and especially when I think you're an associate professor, and in some worlds one would imagine that full professors should be obliged to be chairs of departments. Yes. I, I think, you know, my deal with myself was not until – that book is done and it, I 
sent it to the press on June 30th and I became chair on July 1st. So, oh, okay. So at least it was... You know, it kind of was okay. I should... I'm up for promotion now that sh- hopefully will all happen and it will be fine. But well, yes, I agree. Thank you. I agree that full, it should be reserved. The pleasure should be reserved for the full professors. How long is your term of cat herding? It's three years. So um, I think my dear in the headlights phase I thought it would be done now, but I am really now believing it will be done after the first year. I think the surprises just are keep coming. And so maybe I will have exhausted the spectrum of possibility for surprises over the course of a year. Maybe, maybe not, but at least I will have um, a little more experience with how to respond <laughs> But it's great that you you know how long the term is. That's terrific. Yes, yes. That's terrific. And should you wish to rise up the ladder of administration, uh, it's it's good experience. But should you not, it's good experience and you can be free of it and return. Yes, Yes. and just return to doing what I am trained to do. Do you have any thoughts at the moment of what the next project might be? Or are you just putting that off to one side completely given you've just finished the book, you're up for promotion and you've just become chair? Well, I've had all of these um, truly like soul creative projects that I've wanted to do that were like the little carrot in front of me as I was writing. And I just said, I cannot do any of that until I'm done. And now that I'm done, I'm going to just let myself do a bunch of creative writing. One is um, probably stuff I've talked about with you before, but um, a book about life lessons through sports history and that I had been working on with um, my dad. And I have all of these great recordings of him. He was so, he saw life through only a lens of sports and that's how he taught us everything. And so um, I feel like all of that history is going to die with his generation, there's just so much good stuff. And we always, we used to call him Google sports. Like there was nothing that we needed to know that he, we couldn't ask him for. And so there's a lot of lessons in there in these stories that I grew up on. And so I just kind of want to then take it to the media scholar level where I can go to the archives at, um, you know, the baseball hall of fame and, and for each one of the different leagues and get, dirty in those archives to add to the project. And that's something that I'm really excited. And to honor Big Barry. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, I literally two hours ago finished recording a podcast with Mike Butterworth, who, you know, runs communication and sports at at UT Austin. Oh, great. Which, you know, and his first monograph is about ritual and baseball. And yes. we, we had a great time gossiping. Uh, it was really good. We talked about Doug Flutie. Oh, <laughs> nice. And the Hail Mary Pass. So I would commend to you this. When you're caught up in those UC meetings, University of California meetings, where people <laughs> speak not just in acronyms, but acronyms and numbers. Yes. And numbers with letters between them and then little dots and things. <laughs> throw the odd Hail Mary and see where it lands. Yes. Well, hopefully it won't be caught by a Chicago bear in the end zone and then flung out of his hands for no reason to make sure you lose the game. I mean, oh, geez, last Sunday was so painful. But, yeah, I'll try to I'll try to do the Hail Mary, yeah. you know, not as a Chicagoan. <laughs> so prior to this book, which must have taken years, given the amount of research required, <laughs> You've published other work, and I wondered if you might tell us a wee bit about that, both your edited work and your monograph. Sure. Um, this year also um, a big edited collection called The Sage Handbook of the Digital Media Economy came out that I co-edited with Terry Flew and, um, and Julian... Julian Thomas, um, both of whom are scholars in Australia. 
And that was really great to work on with them. We had a, it was the easiest co-editing experience I've ever had. Just really nice. And I mean, there was a huge roster of people in that book and I don't know, it just kind of went well. There's a lot of material from different perspectives and all over the globe. So that was fun. That just came out. Um, yes. Thanks. Um, my And the cover is red and green. And it always makes me think of like the Sage Handbook of Christmas Studies. And so it's, it might be nice for a holiday gift that we're recording right before right before the holidays. Um, and I, my first book is called Empires of Entertainment. And that was kind of a look at the transformation of how film, television, fil- film, cable, and broadcast, really all the process of recombining into multimedia entertainment conglomerates over the course of, you know, the eighties through the early aughts and so I kind of thought of this book as like the empire strike back kind of thing but with big tech as in that whole picture because a lot of it is about political economy that book was very focused on the political economy of entertainment and um and history and that this kind of continues that but in the world of infrastructure really and then um I've done a couple of edited collections as part of what was the Media Industries Project at Santa Barbara. So with Kevin Sanson, I co-edited a book called Connected Viewing, which was about a lot of research that we did in conjunction with Warner Brothers on the you know, world of connected entertainment. Um, that was a really, really fun project to do with scholars all over the place and um using a lot of engagement with Warner Brothers at while we did it to benefit from their data really and their information, but also understand the way that they they view this landscape too. It was really generative. And then Michael Curtin, Kevin Sanson and I did a book of interviews called Distribution Revolution, which has now become more historical. It's I think about 10 years old and at, you know, it was about the early moments from different perspectives of how digital distribution is rolling out. And that was very enjoyable um, interviewing all of those different characters all over LA. And then Elisa Perrin and I did the media industries edited collection, which was, a nice way to start thinking about media industries as a field. And um, she's talking about revisiting that project as MI2 in the future and kind of looking at how far we've all come. We'll see that happens, but I'm kind of interested in doing some creative stuff. And I'm always still, there's always historical things that come up. I mean, even thinking about AI and, you know, historical antecedents are really interesting. And so there's plenty of work to do. Grief, I'll say that's fantastic. (laughs) And uh, you said that you were involved in the Media Industries Project and you've mentioned a little bit about it. Is that now past? Is that not no longer happening? It is past. It it was a really intense project that was um, funded by Dick Wolf and Marcy Carsey at the Carsey Wolf Center. And um, it was alive and kicking and really vibrant for, you know, about eight years. And we were able to do a lot, a lot, a lot of work. Um, the work that we did is so archived on the website. And it's also alive and well in a lot of different people's publications and in my own and in Michael's and Kevin's. Um, But as with all things, they evolve. And um, I'm kind of, I'm okay with looking for a new iteration of those, you know, that kind of work, but it, Mm. it reached its ultimate 
end point in terms of funding and um, personnel and all of those things. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned the joy of collaboration. Yes. In many of these projects. And that's a terrific thing because it can be an incredible pain in the ass too, but <laughs> can also be very rewarding. And I wondered about what you see as being the difference between the traditional humanities model of the hermetically sealed nun who is mm-hmm. <laughs> doing the daily devotionals to knowledge versus the science model of the great genius at one end of the bench instructing people at the other ends of end of the bench to pour things into test tubes. Yeah, I I think the biggest joy of or the biggest kind of perk of tenure besides job security is the fact that you can collaborate in so many ways and you don't have to, you know, you're not sweating it out like I have to do this much in order to get tenure. Once you get it, you what I didn't realize is just the how um open you are you are uh, it is okay to do collaborations in ways that you kind of didn't feel it was okay before um or didn't have those opportunities before and so to me i just feel like that the in the humanities it's a much more collaborative model in which um we don't just i haven't always i mean i think maybe it's more efficient sometimes to say i'll do this section you do this section will come together at the end, but the experiences I have had have been much more um, of a, of a true collaboration where we're working together on the conceptual foundation and working through the different ideas and we might have different perspectives, but I have grown intellectually so much more from those collaborations than Mm -hmm. from sitting by myself. I mean, even a lot of the work, for my own book grew out of, you know, work that I did at different centers or talks that I gave and then wound up into big discussions with the mm-hmm. audience or, you know, working with Terry and Julian on this last book helped me see a bunch of things differently. So I just, I don't know. I think it's the most underrated part of our job is doing collaborative work that allows you to grow in ways that you kind of didn't expect. Mm. And it makes it more fun. So I've got a couple more questions. And then after I've posed those, I'd like to throw it open to you, Jennifer, just to talk about anything you want, which might add to something we've already discussed, might subtract from it, (laughs) or might be something completely different. Sound okay? Sounds okay. So first thing is, just that I'm going to add as a some notes to the conversation your webpage at University of California, Santa Barbara, which I presume, despite the rain that's falling from the cloud, is still going. Um, You're putting a face. Is there somewhere else you'd prefer? Um, no, I just you just reminded me that I should update it, but I will. Yeah, it does say office hours fall 2020. Yes. <laughs> So I'll get on that. That's okay. That's a good holiday <laughs> project. Is, is there any is there any other website you'd like me to highlight? Um uh not really at this time. Yeah. You're happy with that. So my first question of the two remaining is a little bit personal, but it derives from something you've already told us, which is the example of your dad and the tape recordings Uh, that you have of him and uh, how they are going, your memory of him and those tapes are going to inform this upcoming project about sports and history and so on. And I'm wondering if that's a collaboration, you know, like Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr with the memory of George Harrison and John Lennon. Yeah. You are the best interviewer. You have really great questions. It is a collaboration, but it's such a heavy one because I just got the interviews that I have, but I also have whatever, 50, whatever years of, you know, 
his voice in my head. Mm. And so I, I want to be true to, you know, what he would say and all of that. But I also, I have my own take on things. So it definitely is a collaboration and it's a wrestling in my own head of um, whose voice should be loudest. And I guess I'm the one writing it. So it'll be mine, (laughs) but it'll be him through me. For lots of women that I've spoken to who have interest in sports, there's a sadness that their dads, who were often the dominant sports follower in the family, didn't imbue them with knowledge and love. You know, they either offered that to their sons if they had them or just slunk away into the shed to watch cable with a cigar and a Mm -hmm. beer. Sounds as though your dad really wanted to involve you in this and you were not excluded in the way that so many women are. Oh, yeah. I mean, he only had girls, so he had no choice. I'm I'm interested. I would be interested. It's interesting to think about, like, what if he had um, boys? What would have happened there? But he only had girls, and we were – I mean, it was just – that was life. We – we're at the Bulls games every Tuesday and Friday. This was before Michael Jordan came <laughs> when they were terrible. And then I discovered there was ice underneath that floor. And I was like, what? And so then we went to Hawks games, which was amazing. And um, just every, you know, all of our doings were around sports every weekend. He invented the like um, kind of wall of, wall of TVs that you see in sports bars, he would create that on his own, schlepping television sets from every room up the stairs every Saturday and piling them on top of each other so he could watch each channel. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, at the same time, before there was like picture in picture or anything like that. And that was a, you know, that was a family activity. But it was, you know, it was, yeah, you're right. I mean, we are lucky and that's our own legacy of um, don't underestimate us in a pool. You do that, you're going to lose your money. So you were very much included. I think that'll be an interesting part of the story that you eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something my sister and I definitely take for granted, but we probably shouldn't. Well, I think just for other readers, particularly women readers, and perhaps for fathers who are readers, to emphasize that might be quite an interesting angle. Uh, you know, it, it may not be necessary for you guys, but it, it might give some encouragement and direction. Yeah, that's so readers. lovely. Uh, I mean, what do I know? So my second question is really to ask you in a very general way, and I realize this isn't an easy question to answer, and I wouldn't want to try to answer it. What you see as the future of the intellectual fields where you're located, you know, which could be called film and media studies or cultural studies or media studies or communication studies, you know, there are lots of different titles, media history, but whatever would be the right title for you to describe what you do, what do you see as the future of that? You know, I think the strength of it is that it's, it's a field that at this point encompasses so many different perspectives, methodologies, modalities of research. And I hope that it remains that vibrant. Our, our My own department is really interesting in that we're not known for one specific thing. We have people that do pretty much everything. And so we all kind of feel like, you know, relative outsiders, which is weird. I, I've learned that being from being the chair, that people who I think would be at the center of what we do think, well, nobody understands what I do. And, you know, I'm, nobody else is doing this and I'm kind of on the outside. And so it's interesting that that dynamic has of, of providing so much coverage also creates that feeling. But 
I I honestly don't know. I I I see different trends. I don't know that trends matter that they will survive. Um I hope the importance of historical analysis survives. I'm going to I'm going to go down with that ship for sure fighting that fight. I think everything is so much richer and resonant more resonant if it has a historical foundation for you to understand it. But um, I also think our field has become so much more interdisciplinary, which has been really great and has provided some of the more substantive kind of advancements. There's people in my department that do work on environmental media, for example, and all of their collaborations with um, environmental studies and geographers and all kinds of different fields all over campus, I think has led to so much great work. And I don't know, I, I can't imagine, you know, I hope there would be a renewed love for the humanities that would emerge at some point in this crazy trajectory. And I think our our side of campus, wherever campus we're on, is um, one of the most critical to all of knowledge creation. And so we just, we need to continue demonstrating all of that relevance and there's so much of it. So that's kind of what I think about, but I don't really know what that will look like. I'm just hoping it will continue to expand and matter deeply to anybody that sets foot on a campus or picks up a book or, you know, wanders through life wondering where their email lives, whatever. (laughs) That's a wonderful answer and gives me a lot of hope. Good. That's, you know, my book is so depressing that I have to come up with something hopeful at the end because people are so, like, despondent after really understanding how bad things are. So we got to keep hope alive here. And so the last thing, Jennifer, if I may, is to ask you if there are things we haven't discussed that you'd like to, something you'd like to add to what we have discussed, etc. I mean, we haven't really talked about, um, you know, news at all and the role of news in this, not just cloud landscape, but in for our field and how we think, you know, you can't just teach news analysis anymore. I mean, you have to go dive into AI and deep fakes and misinformation and disinformation and I think, you know, that unit for me alone has become so complex and so complicated. And I think about the way that we understood news growing up, people my of my generation and what this generation of student thinks about it. It's like a battle for them to feel like they can even get information that is reliable or I don't know if they even worry about it enough, at least until I get my hands on them, that you know, the information they're receiving is untrue in some way. And what that means, the responsibilities that that puts on them as citizens. And so thinking about critical media literacy as an issue for younger people is something I've been thinking about a lot. My sister teaches first grade and I mean, it's never too young. When she left me alone in the room with them once, I was talking to them about net neutrality, not in a complicated way, but in a fundamental, you know, like information should be free kind of thing. And you can you can get little kids on board with whatever. Get them thinking about all kinds of things. They're the hope. And so thinking about critical media literacy, really, um, I don't think any kid who's 11 should have a phone in their hand or in their pocket without understanding what that means. And we can, we have to obviously depend on parents, but we have to depend on schools too, to help with that. And that's something that has weighed heavily on me as I've kind of gone through this whole book process. Big time. Yes. You know, I teach in a journalism and digital media department in a faculty of 
information sciences and none of my students can name any daily newspaper in Madrid where they and I live. Yeah, uh, that that's a crisis. None of them, are the, the only sources of news they use are TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. And they know nothing about the Spanish Civil War, nothing about contemporary politics. They're working class and lower middle class students with not a lot of cultural capital in the home who often have two jobs that they need to do in order to be able to go to school, although they don't pay tuition, really. It's pretty much free to everybody. And they don't have the time, the will, the space or the background to deal with the questions that confront us. And I've ended up, in a sense, because there's no liberal education tradition in Spain, it's not like in the US, right? If you do journalism, you learn nothing else, mm-hmm. nothing for your time in college, right? So in my pathetic, pissy way, I've decided to teach them about parliamentary democracy, free yes. speech, environmentalism, gendered violence, you know, regardless of what the name of the class is. Because Yes, what lucky students. That's what they need. That's exactly it. You kind of, you know, this is what it, it becomes. You wind up teaching them about so much more. And frankly, back to your last question of where's our field going, it's going there, right, where you have to give them so much larger context for them to understand the information in front of them. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate your time and your insights, your wit and your brilliance. Thank you, Toby. Always fun to talk to you. And as I said, when the book is out, uh, please come back to the pod. That would be really, really wonderful. It would be an honor to come back.